Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to have Aaron come on up, and I'm going to pray for him quickly. Father, thank you for my brother Aaron and for your word to us this morning. I ask that you would open the eyes and ears of our hearts um, so that you might be able to speak to us, um, make yourself known to us. Thank you for Aaron and his preparation, God. I ask that you would use the words um, that kind of come out of his mouth to glorify yourself and to encourage us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Seth. Good morning, Karis. Good to see you guys. If you've been following along uh, with the news that's been going on in the broader church, then you've probably heard about how God's Spirit moved in a fresh way in Wilmore, Kentucky last month. On February 8th, towards kind of the scheduled end of a relatively mundane chapel service uh, at Asbury University, the Holy Spirit changed the schedule. He decided that it was not time for chapel to end. Towards that scheduled end, uh, the hearts of the students there were moved to continue worshiping together, and they didn't stop worshiping together for the next 12 days. A revival was taking place on campus. And this past week, I listened to an interview with one of the students who was there on that very first evening. Uh, He talked about how over the course of this revival, uh, students would come up to participate in worship, to repent from sin, to be reconciled to other students who they had broken relationships with. He shared his own testimony about how while he was flipping through his journal, he reread an old entry from years ago where he described uh, an incident, an argument, a fight that he had with another student. They ended up hurting one another uh, relationally, and they they never made things right between them. As he closed his journal uh, and looked up during the worship gathering, amidst all the chaos that was going on, I shouldn't say chaos, amidst everything that was going on, he looked up and locked eyes with that student. They got together off to the side and settled the differences that they had had uh, been carrying for the last few years. In the interview, this guy said that what really confirmed for him that this was a work of the Holy Spirit was when the revival kept going onto its fourth day, the evening of February 12th, or as many of us called that day, Super Bowl Sunday. He said only the Holy Spirit could make people cancel their Super Bowl party plans to go continue worshiping, confessing sin, and settling their difference with their brothers and sisters. In an essay titled, The Glory of God and the Reviving of Religion, uh, here's how the late great theologian J.I. Packer described revival. He said this, Revival is God touching minds and hearts in an arresting, devastating, exalting way to draw them to himself through working from the inside out rather than from the outside in, 
It is God accelerating, intensifying, and extending the work of grace that goes on in every Christian's life, but is sometimes overshadowed and somewhat smothered by the impact of other forces. It is the near presence of God giving new power to the gospel of grace. It is the Holy Spirit sensitizing souls to divine realities and so generating deep-level responses to God in the form of faith and repentance, praise and prayer, love and joy, works of benevolence and service, and initiatives of outreach and sharing. And I really love that last line. The Holy Spirit sensitizing souls to divine realities and so generating deep-level responses to God in the form of, amongst other things, faith and repentance. Repentance and faith. Those are the central calls of Jesus' ministry. Turning from sin, trusting in him, pledging allegiance to the new king of a new kingdom. And that's where we find ourselves as we open our Bibles to our sermon passage this morning. As we read these verses today, we see Jesus present to us uh, two paths that we can follow. His path, which leads to life, and any other path, which will ultimately lead to death. But why do we need to hear Jesus' words this morning? Maybe you're saying to yourself, I mean, I'm here, aren't I? You know, my butt's in the pew. I'm on the right path. That may well be true. I sure hope it is. Uh, and at the same time, there are many gates and there are many ways and paths that tempt us to get off track and lead us astray. So I want you to know, or at least be reminded by the time you leave today, that Jesus alone is the Lord of life, and we must give our lives to following him. Jesus alone is the Lord of life. We must give our lives to following him. Before we get, our, before we get into our verses, though, this morning... I think we need to make sure we reorient ourselves in the Sermon on the Mount. I got to tell you, your lead pastor, Kevin Larson, he's a bright guy, smart cookie. Last week, he said something that made me do my uh, instinctual thinking face and thinking noise. I go, like, my head kind of tilts up and to the right, and I go, huh, if I ever do that, it means that you just said something that I'm going to be like thinking about for the next two or three days. What did he say? What did he say last week? He brought up this idea that when Jesus talks about the law and the prophets in the preceding verse, it creates this bracket around chapter 5, verse 17. If he's right, and I think he is, then the first part of chapter 5, the Beatitudes, salt and light, that's Jesus' sermon intro. And that's followed by the bracketed section, his body of teaching, the you've heard it said, but I says, the don't worship like the hypocrites, the discipleship and possession teachings, which would then make our last few sets of verses here at the end of chapter seven, the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe that sounds kind of obvious to you. But uh, it kind of blew my mind last week. I haven't always been able to see how the last little bit of chapter 7 is unified with the rest of the sermon. But there's always more to learn, right? Yeah. So we're getting to Jesus' sermon conclusion. And how does every good sermon end? By pointing to Jesus and with application and a call to action. 
Jesus is going to make a call to action to his disciples and to the crowds that sensitizes their souls to spiritual realities and in so doing, generate a deep level response to him. I like to tell my sixth graders that when I say something three times, you should probably write it down. Jesus wants to close his sermon with a call for people to be revived. So let's get into our text. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. If you're familiar with the teachings of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, you may have already read this passage like a million times in your life, and you're tempted to let it just roll right off your back. But if you can, think about it from the perspective of someone who might be hearing it for the first time, someone who's simply never read this passage before, someone who's new to following Jesus, someone who might not even consider themselves a follower of Jesus at all at this point in their lives. But implicit in these two verses, Jesus raises two issues that are pretty controversial in our culture and even issues that can be controversial within the broader church. Can you see them in here? They're conversations surrounding pluralism and judgment. On the pluralism front, Jesus says it is either his path or the other path. They're two separate paths. On the judgment front, Jesus says that his path leads to life, while the other path leads to destruction. So number one, let's talk about pluralism. These different gates that Jesus brings up. When we think about pluralism, there's a couple of nuances that we need to clarify because there's one sense in which pluralism is a good thing and another sense in which it's really not a good thing. We live in a pluralistic culture, America, Missouri, Columbia. We live in a pluralistic culture, meaning that people from a variety of beliefs, backgrounds, ethnicities, and experiences, we can all live in proximity to each other with relative peace. It's the multitude of different ingredients that are all kind of in this melting pot stew of society that we have. This kind of pluralism, it's simply inescapable. uh, And much of it even is God-ordained. Throughout the New Testament, we see that the church is a group of people where we'll see a plurality of sex, socioeconomic status, and ethnicity. God's kingdom, God's church, it isn't just for men, it's for women too. It's a place where they'll be respected and acknowledged for the co-image bearers of God that they are. His kingdom isn't just for the rich and the powerful, it's for the poor and the humble. It's a place where they can be exalted and cared for. God's kingdom isn't just for one ethnic group, It's for all the nations. And one day, at the end of time, every nation and every culture will bring its good thing that it's produced into God's city. And it's not just the church, and it's not just when God makes our world right again someday, but in the here and now, we even experience a a healthy kind of pluralism. I don't know about you, um, but I'm glad to live in a society where uh, my Muslim and Mormon and atheist neighbors Uh, don't get to force me to believe the way they believe. And we can pretty much live in relative peace with each other. 
And then within the church, I'm also glad that I live in a society where my Pentecostal, Methodist, Lutheran brothers and sisters don't get to force me to hold to their theology. I suppose we generally live in peace with each other most of the time. Fun fact, the, actually the very idea of separation of church and state was kind of pioneered by Baptists. Look it up, uh, but that's a topic for another day. What I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to say here is there's a certain kind of healthy pluralism that's necessary for a society to be free and function and flourish here and now. But that's not the kind of pluralism that Jesus is talking about here, is it? It's not. What Jesus here is speaking into is what's known in our culture as religious pluralism. Religious pluralism is the idea that, to borrow some of Jesus' own imagery here, every gate, every way, every path, every road, all faiths and all religious beliefs eventually lead to the same God at the end. They're all just different paths up the mountains. The mountain. According to this view, the Torah, the Book of Mormon, the Quran, enlightenment, karma, the cross, they all get you to the same general place in the end. Religious pluralism, it's an idea that's really popular in most uh, modern, postmodern uh, Western societies where you have a lot of regular, healthy pluralism. Uh, people from different religious backgrounds living in proximity to one another. It's like my dad used to criticize Taco Bell like this. He used to say, it's all the same thing, just wrapped up differently. He's kind, he's kind of right. I'll give it to him. But that's, that attitude, that's the attitude of religious pluralism. It's all the same. It's just wrapped up differently. It's just a different book. It's just a different way of singing. It's just a different, you know, whatever. It's all the same, just wrapped up differently. If you've been following along with our winter one read, Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin, I think there's still some copies out on the resource table if you want to jump in with us. Uh, you may already know where I'm heading. In her chapter, uh, one of them, she asks the question, how can you say there's only one true faith? It's the title of one of her chapters. She takes on several of the problems of religious pluralism, including what she calls the problems of respect, the problem of truth, and the problem of history. At one point, McLaughlin argues that uh, when we insist on this kind of all the same, just wrapped up differently mentality when it comes to religion, we kind of patronize adherents of each religious tradition. We treat them as either children or unintelligent, this kind of attitude. Um, this is kind of funny. I had an illustration picked out for this, and uh, if you're familiar with the worship leader, Michael Gunger, um, we sang one of his songs this morning. I don't know when it was written, probably a while ago. Uh, used to be a great Christian, great worship leader. Um, he's since fallen away. It's okay that we still sing songs, you know, that he wrote back when, you know, he had really solid, robust theology. Um, you know, there's lots of people that we could do that with, and even old hymns that we can do that with. But today, right now, um, he's probably not someone that we want to be following closely. He had a tweet a while back uh, when he was kind of in the middle of his pluralistic phase of deconstructing his faith, and he, he tweeted this, Jesus was Christ, Buddha was Christ, Muhammad was Christ, 
You are Christ. You want to know who was upset by that tweet? Everyone. Obviously Christians, but also Buddhists and Muslims. In an ironic twist of fate, he ends up co-opting and colonizing these other religions to push his pseudo-Christianity. Side note, we shouldn't even, we shouldn't even be um, okay if he tweeted, Jesus was Christ. Jesus is Christ right now and forever. Jesus didn't stop being Christ at some point. He is right now in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, his chosen king. He is Christ right now. Sorry, I don't want to go on a side rant. McLaughlin, she concludes her chapter on religious pluralism by saying this. She says, ask my Indian friend how he can say there's only one true faith. And he will tell you that he has no choice. To claim that Hinduism and Christianity are ultimately compatible is to do violence to both. And I would not dream of telling my atheist friends that Christianity and atheism are two paths to the same truth. When they say that they do not trust in Jesus, I respect them enough to believe them. This critique of religious pluralism, it's implicit within Jesus' teaching here. He gives us two gates to enter into, and each has a different path with a different end destination. He presents the narrow gate. It's difficult to find. It's a hard road ahead, but it leads to life. And even though we're kind of talking about a multitude of different religious traditions and faiths, um, Jesus actually does kind of lump everything else together. He says there's only one other gate. It sticks out like a sore thumb. And man, is it easy to travel, but it leads to destruction. Friends, this conversation, it's not, I'm not going to act like it's an easy conversation to have. We talk about Christianity and other religions, or Christianity and no religion. We're not just sitting in a Mizzou Religious Studies Department class. We're talking about real people that we really know and who we really love. And at the same time, Jesus just doesn't give us room to hold to a religious pluralism idea. He will not share the glory that is rightfully his. <clears throat> Matthew 7, this isn't the only time where we'll see Jesus use um, pathway and gate language. If you flip over to John's gospel, a couple books over in your Bible, we can read what Jesus says about himself in John chapter 10 and in John chapter 14. Here's what he says. Jesus said again to them, truly, truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Then later on in John 14, Jesus said to him, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the curtain. And in the 1970s, Jesus would have been the beads that were strung up from your groovy apartment. Jesus is the way. And he tells us as straightforwardly as he can, he's the only way. He's the only way. As much as we might sometimes wish that all roads could lead to God independently of one another, it's just simply an impossibility. Because we're only saved by the grace of Jesus. This means that even if someone lives on a, a desert island and never got the chance to hear about Jesus, 
Their only other option is to save themselves by their own good works. It's a way that doesn't lead back to God, though. It only leads to destruction. At the end of Matthew, Jesus gives his disciples the Great Commission. He says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Not a little bit of authority, not some authority, not even most of the authority. All authority. Jesus isn't splitting authority. He's not sharing authority with the Buddha, with Muhammad, with Joseph Smith. It all belongs to him. There's no one else superior. There's not even anyone on the same level as Jesus. So if Jesus first forces us to have a frank conversation about religious pluralism, the second conversation he compels us to address is that of judgment. Now, some folks might accuse us at Karis of, of not bringing up the doctrines of hell and judgment enough. I guess maybe that's something that we, we don't necessarily bring up on a regular basis. I think one of the reasons at its heart, at least for me when I'm preaching, is that the book of Romans, it tells us that it is the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. I want to tell you this morning, I do not want you to follow Jesus because you are compelled by fear of God's very real judgment to follow him. Instead, I want you to follow Jesus because you are so captured by his beauty and his goodness and his grace. I'm going to say that again. I don't want you to follow Jesus because you are afraid of the very real punishment that God will bring on sin. Again, it's very real. I want you to follow Jesus because you are captured, enraptured by who Jesus is and what he's done for you. So yeah, you're not going to hear me, uh, you're not going to confuse me with a fire and brimstone preacher. But I hope you'll never confuse me with a preacher who won't show you Jesus. We're sinners in the hands of a loving God. And at the same time, maybe you think that we talk too much about hell and judgment, or that we shouldn't talk about it at all. And to that, I have to encourage you as well. Um, we talk about hell when the biblical text talks about hell and judgment. And Jesus talks about those topics as much, as, if not more than, anyone else in the Bible. We've been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount for a while. This is the third time, the third time in one block of teaching that Jesus has brought up the topic of hell or judgment. These doctrines, they're biblical, and so they're true, and so we're not going to dismiss them when they come up in our passages. And what do you know? Jesus does bring up judgment in our passage today, so we can't shy away. In one of his most famous books uh, called The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis imagines this correspondence between a high-ranking evil spirit and his low-ranking nephew who is starting to get into the business of tempting humans. It's a big parable. Uh, Lewis offers some commentary on our passage today when he puts these words in the mouth of the, the senior demon giving advice to the younger demon. He says, you will say that they, these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. 
But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the person from God. Does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick, or whatever sin that you think is small. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. I read a while back that, um, like on the highway, Every so often, you know, legally, there has to be some kind of turn, even a minor turn. That way you stay awake and alert while you're driving. Otherwise, you know, crash into someone. It's easy to be lulled into sleepy state or a state of not thinking about where you're going when you don't have to think about where you're going. Jesus says, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, enter by it, are many. Teachings like these, they should perk us up a little bit. They should make us pay closer attention to what Jesus is saying. What does he mean the gate is wide and that the way is easy? The sad reality is that all humans are born into this state of sinfulness. We can thank the first humans who rebelled against God for that. But we all know that we're sinful. We all know that we've done things and rebelled against God in our own ways. By their actions, by our own actions, the course is set for all humans to follow after them. Our hearts are, they're naturally corrupted. Paul picks up on this truth uh, when he writes his letter to the Romans. In chapter 3, he writes this, it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Altogether, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Because if humanity's fall into sin, sin has become our default setting. So, of course, the gate is wide and the way is easy. It's one we all start on. Paul keeps writing, and he picks up on the same aspects of judgment as well, and just a, a few chapters later. He says, the wages of sin is death. The natural consequence, the end of this road is death, or as Jesus puts it, destruction. This may seem frustrating to us, right? From this vantage point, living our lives here and now, especially if we're on uh, this narrow and difficult path, to look over at the wide and easy path and be jealous. If we're made to follow Jesus then why is it so much harder than not following Jesus? Anyone relate to that? If we're made to follow Jesus, why is it so much harder than not following Jesus? Church family, you're not the first and you won't be the last person to experience that feeling and ask that question. One of the psalm writers said the same thing in Psalm 73. He writes, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Sounds like he's on a difficult path. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He prays, God, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the people who cheat and steal and lie to get to the top get to stay there so long? 
and my life is so hard. Sometimes I wish I could just take the easy way up. Most of the the middle of this psalm is spent looking at the life of luxury that the wicked live. But by the time we get to the end, the psalm writer is reflected in light of God's heart and comes to this conclusion. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Same set of parameters that Jesus' teaching comes from. And the inevitable judgment for sin is perishing. God will put an end to them. The Bible's warnings about judgment are so pointed because the punishment is so perilous. We see difficult or we see different imagery used to describe hell or God's judgment. It's fire, it's darkness, it's death, it's destruction, it's separation, it's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the one thing we see consistently is that on the last day, when God judges everything and everyone, his judgments are final and forever. The judgments God renders are always just, and they will stand for eternity. The Bible makes it clear that we all begin with a foot on that easy path, and Jesus tells us that many will continue to go down that way. Again, this is a hard topic, because when we talk about judgment, we're not just having a theological conversation. Think about people that we know and people that we love. When it comes down to it, it's a confusing topic sometimes. It can strain our hearts because we care so much for those people that we love. I think about the end of Genesis 18 where Abraham is pleading with God, trying to bargain with God about will he you know, spare Sodom and Gomorrah? If there was 50 righteous, if there was 25 righteous, if there was one righteous person, would you spare it? And God continues to you know, be willing to bargain with him. Eventually they get down to the end and Abraham's ultimate response is, won't the God of all the universe, won't the judge of all the universe do what is right? And sometimes when it comes to questions like these of pluralism and judgment, I have to throw up my hands and I just know, God, I know that you're the judge of everything and I know that you're going to do what's right. It's confusing to me sometimes. Won't say that it's not. Won't the judge of all the earth do what is just? He will. Jesus' words here, they force us to have tough conversations about religious pluralism, about final judgment, but that doesn't mean we should see these verses as utterly bleak. The warning about the wide gate is sobering, but it's not the only way. Jesus implores us, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Chorus, Jesus is the way. As I was reading these verses this week, I thought back to spring break of my senior year in college. Uh, A couple buddies and I, we made a road trip out to Utah, and we camped in some of the different national parks there. It was awesome. It was totally gorgeous. We finished up our trip with three days camping outside of Zion National Park. 
if you haven't been there, you should find a way to get there. Um, one of the most famous trails that they have there at that park is called Angel's Landing. It's a long trail. It starts with these switchbacks that are cut into the side of the canyon wall. Pretty standard as far as hiking in the mountains go. But once you get finished with that section, the first half, um, the real fun begins. About halfway up, the trail transitions. There's kind of a landing. But then the trail transitions into a narrow, single-file scramble over uh, the spine of these two sheer cliffs on each side with nothing to hold on to but this chain that's been bolted into the rock. If you want to, you can look it up on your phone. Uh, This is the only time I'll tell you to get on your phone during the sermon time. When you get to the top, it's called Angel's Landing. When you get to the top, park rangers make sure that you stop there for like 10, 15, 20 minutes so that the hikers who are there have room to go back the other way. And while you're up there, you basically get this 360-degree view of the entire Zion Canyon. My buddies and I, we hiked this trail. It took us all week to kind of psych ourselves up for it. Unfortunately, I didn't take any pictures uh, while I was on the trail because I was really concentrating on not falling off the side of the cliff. Um, But anyway, when you get to the halfway point where it transitions from the switchbacks to the, you know, single file stretch. There's kind of a bunch of people milling around on that landing, asking each other, are, they, are we really going to do this? Once you see it, you can look at a picture and be like, that's scary. And once you see it, you're like, yeah, that's scary. And so a lot of people didn't make the hike. They didn't finish the hike. It was hard enough just to get to that narrow way. If you had to hike a long way just to get to that point, and then when people saw it, So many people just noped out. It's too long. It's too far. It's too steep. It's too scary. Friends, the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And few are able and willing to make the trek. We might ask the same question again that we asked earlier. If we're made to follow Jesus, then why is it so much harder than not following Jesus? And like we acknowledged earlier, it does look like the other way is easier. But maybe part of that reason is because we don't understand what it's like at the end of the trail. Maybe as I was coming back, I should have talked to some of those hikers who were mulling it over. Hey, I know it looks hard. It is hard. I know it looks scary because it is scary. But when you get to the end, it will 1,000% be worth it. The view is incredible. You see that rattling chain bolted into the rock? You will be clinging to it for dear life the entire time. It's the only way you're going to make it, but that's what it's there for. That's kind of the point. We can't even make it to the final spot of that trail without clinging onto Jesus for dear life the entire time. I've been using a lot of um, football illustrations, I feel like, um, the last few weeks because of the Super Bowl. Uh, But it's time I get back to my nerdier roots. One one commentator I read this week, he's a Scottish guy, Scottish scholar. And he made the reference to this popular TV show, Doctor Who. If you don't know anything about Doctor Who, that's all right. It's about a time-traveling alien who goes on adventures with their companion. The doctor... 
the doctor's time machine, time-traveling spaceship. On the outside, it looks like a pretty innocuous police box. For us Yanks, that's just a telephone booth that's blue, and you call the police from it. When you walk inside, it's anything but a regular phone booth. For starters, it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. And then on top of that, it has every little thing, every little gadget and gizmo and resource that you could ever need to um, travel to any galaxy in any time period and interact with any species of alien life. And that's kind of what the kingdom of God is like. Stay with me. Looking at it from the outside, it's a narrow gate and a difficult path. It looks poor in spirit, meek and merciful. It feels mournful, and it feels like being hungry and thirsty for righteousness a lot. And it will require a life of peacemaking and persecution and purity of heart. It's a kingdom that is experienced first through death and then lived into by resurrection life because the whole kingdom takes the shape of its king. If that seems like a lot, it is. Here's what Jesus would say to you today. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and the age to come eternal life. Jesus encourages you, don't you dare think that following me won't actually be worth it. Don't you dare think that you could give something up that's of greater value than me and my kingdom. And not just more valuable at the end of the road, but now, right now, right here, today, what you have in Jesus is greater than anything that you could have given up to have him. Amen. Cars Church, it's tax season. And every tax season, I know, I see the same meme pop up on social media. Some of you don't know what I'm about to say. That's okay. The government knows exactly how much you owe them, but they don't tell you. They make you guess. And if you guess wrong, you go to jail. I see the same meme pop up every March and April. Jesus is not like that. He does, he does confront us with conversations about religious pluralism and judgment, but he doesn't just poke his head into our lives and say, just so you know, there's only one true religion, and I know which one, but I'm going to make you guess, and if you guess wrong, eternal punishment. No, Jesus says that he himself is the answer. Jesus himself is the gate. Jesus himself is the way. I want to leave you this morning with the same call that Jesus gave to his disciples and to the crowds. Enter by the narrow gate. That's not just a heading for another set of teaching. It's a call, a command even. Jesus sees us going down the wrong way, down that easy path that leads to destruction, and he calls to us, repent from your sin, turn and go the other way. It's a call to a new way of life. You see, Jesus isn't calling you just to walk by and check out the gate. Wow, nice paint job, the hinges look like they're intact. He's not just calling you over to check out the pavement. Ah, you did a great job grouting between those tiles. Gates are made for entering through, and paths are made for walking on. The call is not just to acknowledge Jesus, look at him, 
but to follow him into the new life that he offers you. Jesus invites anyone and everyone to come and receive life forever. See, Jesus never walked a step on the easy road, yet he was still willing to go and experience the judgment and the death at the end for ourselves. When he rose from the grave, he illuminated the path to life, as windy and narrow as it is, and he's there to carry us through in the most difficult spots. No, he's there to carry us through the whole thing. He wants to sensitize our souls to these divine realities and generate in us deep level responses to him, like faith and repentance. Church, he wants to revive us. Let's pray. Dear Father, revive our hearts this morning. Revive our church this morning. Revive our city today. God, you sent Jesus to be the only way to you. You sent him to take the destruction that we deserved for walking the other path. Jesus, as we continue to worship around your table, would you grant us unity by your spirit? Jesus, give us a deeper experience of unity with you and with our brothers and sisters around us. We give you thanks for everything. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.